Section 17 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 5. Conflict of Catholicism and Protestantism, 1576 to 1586. Chapter 1. The Struggle in the Netherlands, 1576 to 83. We must return from these peaceful progresses of Elizabeth to the dangers which still surrounded her. In a sonnet she expresses her feelings. The doubt of future foes exiles my present joy, and wit me warns to shun such snares as threaten mine annoy. There was still in England the daughter of debate that eke discord doth sow. So long as Mary of Scotland lived, Elizabeth could not be free from danger. The danger that next threatened her was from the side of the Netherlands. Recasens did not long carry on his policy of pacification, as he died early in 1576. Before a successor arrived, the Spanish troops in the Netherlands mutinied to recover their arrears of pay. Philip II was so impoverished by his many undertakings that he could not supply the Netherland troops with money. They were determined to take matters into their own hands. They organized themselves into officers of their own appointment and seized upon the wealthy city of Antwerp. The Spanish Fury, as this attack was called, ruined the most flourishing commercial city of Europe. Many of its citizens were massacred, its wealth was carried off, and its merchants dispersed. The indignation caused by this butchery and pillage did much to bind together the Netherlands states, of which two only were Protestant, while fifteen remained Catholic. By the pacification of Ghent, November 8, 1576, all the seventeen states bound themselves to expel the Spaniards and agreed to sink religious differences for that purpose. Meanwhile, the new governor of the Netherlands was hastening thither to realize great plans for his own future. Don John of Austria, the natural brother of Philip II, was now in his thirty-second year and was the most renowned general in Europe. His victory at Lepanto had filled his mind with ambitious dreams. He had made his brother an offer of conquering the Moors in Tunis if he might be allowed to rule that country as king. The Pope supported him in his request, but Philip, who was conscious of his own want of military capacity or gifts to win popularity, was alarmed at the prospect of a rival. He sent his brother to the Netherlands to keep him out of the way. But Don John went there with a still more brilliant scheme, for which likewise he had obtained the papal sanction. He was resolved to pacify the Netherlands rapidly, and then with his Spanish troops cross over to England, put himself at the head of the Catholics, liberate and marry Mary, and rule as king. This plan did not long escape Philip's vigilance. He was doubly alarmed, but could take no open step against it. It was lucky for Elizabeth that Don John had not arrived earlier. The pacification of Ghent had already been formed, and gave the Netherlands a solid basis of resistance, which might withstand elusive promises of redress. Don John had with difficulty obtained Philip's consent to his attack on England, on the condition that it was made with Spanish soldiers only. 
His first object, therefore, was to quiet the Netherlands and draw off the Spanish troops to England. Negotiations were at once begun, and the Netherlands estates demanded the ratification of the pacification of Ghent, the maintenance of their old customs and charters, and the immediate withdrawal of the Spanish troops. On this last point, Don John labored to have a delay of three months and provision for their removal by sea. The states, however, were obstinate in demanding their immediate withdrawal by land. It was in vain that Don John urged every plea he could invent for the delay. The Netherlanders had made up their minds, and he was at last compelled to yield the point. He saw with despair his hopes destroyed for the present. All unconsciously, the Netherlanders had saved England from a great danger and had freed Philip from anxious alarm. Philip was rejoiced to see his brother's ambitious schemes disappointed, and was determined to let his haughty spirit wear itself out in the hopeless task of reducing the Netherlands without an army. The demands of the Netherlanders were agreed to by the Perpetual Edict, February 17, 1577. The Spanish troops were withdrawn, and Don John was left to face the difficulties of his position. His restless mind could not adapt itself to carry out a gentle and yielding policy. He was naturally looked upon with suspicion by the people. He had neither patience nor forbearance for the task imposed upon him. Moreover, Philip was bent upon his destruction. A plot was laid by Philip's Secretary of State, Antonio Perez, to draw treasonable expressions from Don John. Feigning to be his friend, he wrote to him and showed all his answers to the king. Don John's secretary, Escovedo, was sent to Madrid, where he was assassinated by the orders of Perez with Philip's connivance. Don John felt that he was surrounded by an atmosphere of suspicion and that he stood single-handed. He knew that his great schemes were hopeless that he would be refused the necessary means for governing the Netherlands and would be kept there till he had undone his previous reputation. The peace which had been agreed upon did not long continue. Misunderstandings arose between the estates and Don John, and in October 1577 war was again declared. But the political issues of the struggle between Spain and the Netherlands had now broadened, the foremost man among the Netherlanders was the Prince of Orange. He had been the leading spirit in the contest against Philip. As being a Protestant, however, he was disliked by the Catholic nobles, who accordingly invited the Archduke Matthias of Austria to put himself at their head. Matthias was the brother of the Emperor Rudolf, but he brought neither wisdom nor money to aid a feeble cause. Moreover, there were hopes of help from France. The brother of King Henry III, the Duke of Alençon, or Duke of Anjou as he became on his brother's accession, put himself at the head of the party of politicians and advocated the old policy of hostility against Spain. He occupied an almost independent position in France, and many of the Netherland nobles looked to him for help. The prospect of this roused Elizabeth to take more decided steps that the Netherlands should become French would be as dangerous to England as that they should become Spanish. Elizabeth made a treaty of alliance with the Netherlands, lending them money and supplying them with troops. 
The Netherlanders, however, could do nothing in the field against disciplined Spanish soldiers. In January 1578, they were defeated with great loss by Don John at Jean Bleu. But it was his last exploit. Worn out by despondency, he fell victim to a pestilence raging in his army and died on October 1st, 1578, at the age of 32, leaving a last request that his body should be buried in the Escurial by the side of his imperial father. Don John was succeeded in the Netherlands by Alexander Farnese, Prince of Parma, son of Margaret, Duchess of Parma, who had been regent when the troubles in the Netherlands first broke out. He soon proved himself to be admirably fitted for the task he had undertaken. He was the first commander in Europe uniting bravery with coolness and decision. He could plan a campaign as well as win a battle, and in the art of besieging cities he was without a rival. Besides his military talents, he had great powers of governing. His manner was conciliatory. He was just and patient, and was resolutely fixed on carrying out by every means the end he had set before himself. He was, moreover, a keen politician, who delighted in spinning or unraveling with cautious prudence the web of diplomatic intrigue. It was not long before the results of his presence were felt in the Netherlands. He managed to take advantage of the differences between the Catholic and Protestant states, the Walloon provinces of the south, which were all Catholic, entered into a separate union. William of Orange, by the Union of Utrecht, combined the seven provinces of Gelderland, Obereisel, Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Groningen, and Friesland to defend themselves against Spain and maintain their religious liberties. This Union of Utrecht was the foundation of the Netherland Republic, these seven provinces held together under the guidance of the Prince of Orange. The other ten provinces gradually fell back into the hands of Spain, though on tolerably advantageous terms, as there were no religious difficulties in the way. In face of this state of things, William of Orange, and the nearer united provinces, as they were called, found it necessary to take decided steps for their own preservation. In the early part of the year, 1580, the war languished in the Netherlands, for Philip's attention was turned to Portugal, the vacant crown of which he claimed through his mother, a daughter of King Manuel. He was opposed by the Duke of Braganza, and also by a natural son of the royal house, Don Antonio. But Philip's power carried all before it. Alva advanced into Portugal, and in fifty-eight days had expelled Don Antonio, and reduce the country under Philip. The conquest of Portugal was finished before any of the other powers of Europe had time to interfere. This accession to Philip's power increased his determination to reduce the Netherlands, and filled the Netherlanders with dismay. But it also awoke the jealousy of France and England, and made open resistance to Spain more necessary. The European conflict, which for a few years had seemed to be lulled, awoke with greater intensity than before. Philip II and his advisers were convinced that the Prince of Orange was the great obstacle to the reconquest of the Netherlands. In March 1580, Philip published a solemn ban in which he recounted all the crimes of William of Orange 
and exposed him as an enemy of the human race. Anyone who delivered him up, alive or dead, was to receive 25,000 crowns of gold and to be ennobled for his valor. To this, William replied in a famous apology in which he denounced unsparingly the misdeeds of Philip and in the noblest tones asserted the lawfulness of his own patriotic endeavor. But it was necessary for him to prepare for a long conflict and to strengthen the Netherlands by foreign help. At the earnest request of the estates of Holland and Zeeland, he accepted on July 5, 1581, the sovereignty over those two provinces as long as the war should last. At the end of the same month, all the provinces which had not yet made terms with Parma abjured by a solemn act the sovereignty of Philip. He had not fulfilled his duties as their protector. He had destroyed their ancient liberties and treated them as slaves. He was not their prince, but their tyrant. As such, they lawfully and reasonably claimed to depose him. The Netherlanders prepared themselves for open fight. They could not hope to cope with Philip single-handed, but by abjuring his sovereignty they could put themselves under the protection of the powers opposed to Spain. The Archduke Matthias of Austria had been useless to them. He was dismissed with thanks, and the Duke of Anjou was elected sovereign by all the states except Holland and Zeeland, who would have no head but William of Orange. They hoped that the old hostility between France and Spain might be revived, and that as Henry II had defended the oppressed Germans against Charles V, so Henry III might maintain their cause against Philip. Moreover, there was a project of marriage between Elizabeth and the Duke of Anjou. If this had been brought about, a union would have been formed between England and France in opposition to Spain. Political motives would have once more prevailed over religious dissensions, and the old system of European politics would have been re-established as it had been before the Reformation. The wooing of the Duke of Anjou is ludicrous enough in the accounts which have come down to us. It is difficult to believe that Elizabeth, at the mature age of forty-eight, could have any deep affection for her ill-favored suitor who was twenty years younger than herself. Francis of Anjou was small and badly made. His face was marked with smallpox, his skin was covered with blotches, and his nose was swollen to double its size. His voice was harsh and grating. Elizabeth used to call him her frog. No doubt Elizabeth was ready to marry him and was nearer to marriage with him than with any of her previous suitors, because she thought that through him her political position might be securely established. Yet she was resolved to be quite sure on this point before committing herself. Meanwhile she behaved with all the coyness of a bashful girl. She allowed her subjects to think her mind was made up, and waited to see the result. A pamphlet appeared by a young lawyer of the name of Stubbs called The Discovery of a Gaping Gulf, wherein England is like to be swallowed up by another French marriage, if the Lord forbid not the bans by letting her see the sin and punishment thereof. The book was suppressed by royal proclamation, and Stubbs was sentenced to the amputation of his right hand. After the execution of his sentence, Stubbs waved his hat with his left hand and cried, God save the Queen. But Elizabeth learned from the feeling then displayed 
that the English Protestants looked with disfavor on a French marriage. Meanwhile, in the summer of 1581, the Duke of Anjou advanced into the Netherlands, compelled the Prince of Parma to relinquish the siege of Cambrai, and garrisoned the town. Then, disbanding his army, he crossed over to England to pursue his wooing. The articles of the marriage treaty were concluded, but still Elizabeth wavered. When it came to the point, she doubted if France would really hold to the offensive and defensive alliance which she demanded. She doubted how her marriage would affect her own position and power. Anjou was received with every sign of affection. After a splendid festival, the queen, in the presence of her court, drew a ring from her finger and placed it upon his. But after three months' wooing, during which time Elizabeth showed him every possible regard, her mind was still not made up. Anjou departed, for he could be no longer absent, from the Netherlands. Elizabeth herself accompanied him to Canterbury and took leave of him with tears. A splendid retinue of English nobles was sent to accompany him, and Elizabeth wrote to the Estates General of the Netherlands, requesting them to honor him as if he were her second self. Perhaps she wished to see how Anjou would succeed in the Netherlands before committing herself to him. She wished still to have it in her power to resume negotiations for marriage if she were convinced that it would be advantageous to her. In February 1582, Anjou was installed in Antwerp as Count of Brabant, and soon afterwards was accepted by the other united provinces, except Holland and Zeeland, as their prince. In every case, he received the old constitutional sovereignty and was bound to maintain the old liberties. He soon chafed at the restraints by which he found himself surrounded. He complained that the real power was in the hands of the Estates General and that he was prince only in name. A plan was accordingly formed among his French officers of seizing on the most important cities and making Anjou supreme by force. Anjou himself planned the surprise of Antwerp. On January 17, 1583, the French troops suddenly dashed through the streets of Antwerp, crying out, Vive la Messe! Vive le Duc d'Anjou! The citizens were at first surprised, and the French dispersed to plunder. But the burghers soon recovered themselves and threw up barricades in the streets. The French were driven out with great slaughter, and Anjou, who was eagerly awaiting the results outside the gates, had to retire baffled. This act of deliberate treachery awoke the deepest resentment among the Netherlanders, but William of Orange was anxious to avoid any rupture with France. The year was spent in futile negotiations with Anjou, who at last retired to Paris, where he died in June 1584. He was a man entirely destitute of any principles. His sole motive was a vainglorious desire for his own advancement. His appearance is ludicrous in the history of England and contemptible in the history of the Netherlands. If he had won a battle against the Spanish forces in the Netherlands, the result might have been most important. French help might have been openly given against Spain. He might have married Elizabeth, and England and France might have united in a great effort against Spain on the battlefield of the Netherlands. As it was, he strengthened the hands of the Duke of Parma, for his presence at Cambrai gave a reason to the provinces which favored Parma for admitting Spanish troops. 
If they had not done so, Parma's hands would have been tied. Lastly, Anjou's treacherous attempt against Antwerp spread distrust and confusion among the United Provinces. End of Section 17